Well, let's pray that he would speak through this text before us today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come, we come to a, a passage that's really searching, that really would want to explore every nook and cranny of our hearts. And we cannot run from it, we cannot hide from it. So grant us your blessing as we think about it, that you might speak to us of eternal things and things that really matter, that these things might really affect so much of our lives. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is the last of this series on Matthew chapter 24 and 25, where Jesus has been speaking about the end times, the Olivet Discourse. If you've been following along, you'll know that it's become very apparent in the last number of texts we've looked at, these last four parables that Jesus spoke from the end of chapter 24 right through chapter 25, that all has been spoken that we might be ready for his coming, that we might be prepared. And we've heard that to be prepared is to be faithful. We've heard that to be prepared is to be watching. We've heard that to be prepared is to be fruitful. And now we come to this text. It's a difficult text, not because it's unclear, but because it is too clear. It's a sword, isn't it, that would in so many ways divide the thoughts and intentions of all our hearts. The parable of the sheep and the goats is perhaps the scariest part of Scripture. See, Jesus has raised the possibility that there may be some who are coming, who are waiting for him to come, who think they are his disciples but are not, who think they are ready but are not. And he gives this parable as a general warning to all and sundry, to all of humanity, to all of his people, to all of us to be ready for his coming because when the day comes, as we saw in the story, the parable of the ten bridesmaids, it will be too late to change sides and judgment will follow his return. And as we saw in the parable of the talents last week, his return and that judgment is going to be searching. There's no way to pull wool over his eyes. Either we have fruit to show him or we're in deep trouble. And so today we come to this last of the parables and as we do, we note that when Jesus brings this discourse of Matthew 24 and 25 to a conclusion, he really brings it to a conclusion in one of the most direct and clear parables that he ever told, a parable which naturally follows on and flows from the parable of the talents. 
and bringing to mind as it does that the day of the return of Jesus will be at the same time a wonderful and a terrible day. A wonderful day for the sheep. A terrible day for the goats. A wonderful day if you have fruit to show. A terrible day if that fruit is lacking. In this parable, Jesus sets forth exactly what will happen on the final day of judgment. And in it, he tells us that there will be three categories of people who come before him. There will be those who have truly believed on him and walked his way and have fruit to show. There will be those who have never professed to be his disciples and didn't think that important and have no fruit to show. But there will also be those who profess to be his disciples, but in the end will be revealed to be false disciples. And that's the scary part, isn't it? That's the really heart-searching, scary part. And out of those three categories of people, only one is entered, enters the glory of the kingdom. So if the parable of the bridesmaids has reminded us about preparedness and the need for fruitfulness in the parable of the talents and now this parable, that of the sheep and the goats, it does something else for us. It gets right to the heart. This parable has also been misunderstood over the years, not because it's unclear, but because it's too clear. And I think it's been misinterpreted in some quarters or taken out of its context and said, look, here is the way of salvation. Jesus makes it quite clear. You've got to do good. And I think it's been misinterpreted that way to make it a little bit more palatable than it is, a little less weighty, a little less heavy, a little less searching than it really is. I don't want to do that this morning. I want it to weigh heavily upon you as you think and hear together. Three points. First, let's look at the scene of the final judgment that Jesus gives us in verses 31 to 33. And he teaches us that when he comes again, he will not come as a humble, humiliated baby but he will come as the supreme ruler and judge of all. Now the parable before us has symbolic language, unlike the other parables we've covered in the last two weeks. In those parables we've seen described everyday things like bridesmaids and lamps and slaves and wages. Here the matters are different and weightier. And they actually tell us what is going to happen when Jesus comes as judge. And in this section, in verse 31 in particular, we find words and claims that we can't overlook. For a start, notice that Jesus describes himself as the Son of Man, bringing to mind Daniel's vision of chapter 7, the Son of Man who comes in glory and rises and ascends to the Father's throne. 
He speaks of his accompanying angels who are going to come with him. And he speaks of how when he comes, he will what? He will stand? No, he will sit. He will sit on his throne. He will sit as any royal ruler would do. He will sit upon his throne. That throne that is his by right. And as king and as supreme ruler of all, his next task will be to judge. Don't miss the absolute claims that Jesus makes here. These things that he says fit perfectly with the picture that the Old Testament prophets give us of how the day of the Lord will unfold. This is an unmistakable claim by Jesus to be God. If the Pharisees and scribes had heard Jesus speak these words, they would have immediately torn their robes and accused him of blasphemy. But the thing was, he could say these things because he was God. And so he tells us, as the Supreme Lord, as the King of Kings, how the judgment will unfold, how he will separate the righteous from the unrighteous, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. It's not just a few involved in this picture, mind you. It's all the nations are sitting before the bar of his throne. All the nations. The picture is as wide as as it is deep, as it is high. It's complete, it's total, it's eternal. It's everyone. Every nation. In other words, the picture that he's describing for us is bigger than the universe itself. Bigger than anything you can think of. And then he tells us how it's to be done. The background of the symbolism that he uses, the sheep and the goats, is of course from the practice of the shepherds of his day. The shepherds at night, when bringing their flocks in, would put sheep here, goat there. And unlike sheep and goats in this country, it was only often the shepherd who knew the flock so well to tell them apart. And why the sheep favoured over the goats? Well, we know from stories around the first century that sheep were often preferred over goats. Goats were viewed as as a harbinger of trouble. And sheep, perhaps because of their stupid and dumb natures and gentle natures, that's the way they were contrasted in all of first century literature. Sheep, yeah, good guys. Goats, well, they're the bad guys. And so Jesus is saying here, when I come, when I sit in glory, when I sit at my judgment throne, my task will be to separate and to judge between this flock. And the metaphor Jesus uses comes right out of Ezekiel chapter 34, verse 17. There we are told by Ezekiel of something God would do in the last day. It says, for you, my flock... Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will judge between one sheep and another, between the ram and the goat. The Lord Jesus is appealing to that story and he's saying to his disciples that above all, it applies to him. He will do that work for he is God. And that's maybe the major point of contention here. 
again we're confronted by the claims. Jesus says, I am God. I am the God of the Old Testament. It's unmistakably clear. The prophecy clearly says that God will do the separating. And Jesus says, when I come in glory, I will sit on my throne and I will do the separating. Now in response, you can either accept his claim or reject it, but you cannot trifle with it. You cannot dismiss it. You cannot disregard it. When Peter explained the gospel to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10, he said, God has commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Stop there for a moment. Jesus is going to be your judge. You might tremble at that thought, but you might also be comforted by it. See, the one who loved you, the one who gave himself for you, is going to be your judge. And he isn't in the habit of changing his mind about the promises that he's made to you, that if you believe in him, you have passed from death to life. You've gone from that camp to that camp. But for the unbeliever, for the false believer, there will be more than trembling. The thought is going to cross their minds. It's all too late. It's all too late. Why didn't I use the opportunity that I was given when I heard the gospel to believe and come to Christ? You see, on the last day when we see Lord Jesus as judge on his throne, the matter is finished. It's determined. There's no swapping from goat to sheep. The judgment is not about second chances. It's about whose side you were on when the final siren sounded and the judge took up his seat. Secondly, in verses 34 to 40, uh, Jesus describes the reward of the righteous. The reward of the righteous. Jesus goes on to say what he does now uh, to comfort his disciples who must have wondered as they heard him just how and when what all this he had spoken in this long discourse would come to. Now in many of the parables Jesus told whenever he spoke of a king, it's fairly standard to understand that Jesus spoke of his father. But in the passage, it's clear that he is the king. And it's he who says, from his position upon the throne to those on his right, his chosen ones, these things. For a start, they are objects of the father's grace. He says, come, you who are blessed of my father. Then they are the recipients of the Father's generosity. We read of them that they are given a kingdom prepared for them before time began. And then, he says, their works are evidence of their faith. And what are those works? Kindness to their persecuted and abandoned brothers in the faith. And this kindness is evidence of their true love for them, and more importantly, their love for the king. 
And so they are judged righteous in accordance with how they have treated other believers. Those hungry, those thirsty, those naked, those imprisoned, they will be judged according to their neighbour love for believers in word, in need. But how is it that we can say this passage does not teach salvation by works? Two ways. For starters, God favours these people before the foundation of the world, before they've even existed, and therefore before they've done anything good or bad. So salvation can't be based on their work because grace has already saved them. And then if these righteous ones on Jesus' right-hand side had thought that salvation was by works and when Jesus had started listing off the things that they had done for him, they would have had their list ready of the things that they had done for him to add to that list. But they were totally oblivious to the things he'd said they'd done. For when Jesus listed the things they had done according to his record, they said, Lord, when did we do that? We don't remember doing that. If they were working their way to heaven, if they believed that salvation was by works, they would have said, Lord, you forgot some things. I did this, I did this, and I gave that, and I helped this person. But Jesus said, look at all the wonderful things you've done for me. And they go, when did we do that? We were just living out the gospel. These people are not theological brownie point collectors who are trying to earn their way to heaven through individual deeds and are thinking about it all the time and trying to do some deeds so that God will love them. It's not what this is about. These people simply love the Lord Jesus and because the Lord Jesus loved them, they also love his people. And that truth is meant for them as Paul has said in Romans 13.10, love does no wrong to a neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And what is their reward? Well, it's entry into the kingdom, a kingdom prepared for them before the foundation of the world, a kingdom in which the righteous are welcomed on the basis of the one who is likewise slain for them before the foundation of the world in order that they might enter in. Not because of their works, but because of his grace. Third, verses 41 to 46, and these words are tough. Jesus speaks of the punishment of the unrighteous. He speaks to those on his left. On the left are those who are either unbelievers or false believers. For a start, they're commanded to depart from God's presence. They didn't want God's presence in their life. They didn't want him. So now they get what they want, to be away from him. Depart from me. What terrible words are they? Depart from me. Secondly, they are sent to the same place of punishment created by God for the devil and his fallen angels. It shows us a picture, doesn't it, of how serious God takes sin. Some people might say, I, I never denied the deity of Christ. 
I never denied any element of Christian doctrine, but neither of that matters have been if you didn't embrace what was true. As some might say, I never committed a horrible crime. I never murdered or committed adultery. I never stole. I never cheated. I never did those things. It doesn't matter, Jesus said, if you did not love the brethren, you didn't do it. Jesus is showing us just how seriously he takes his brothers and sisters. And the third thing here is they're condemned because of what they failed to do, not what they did do. Isn't it interesting that what he's accusing them of here is not a sin of commission? It's not to do with what they did, but it's to do with what they didn't do. He's not saying that on this final day he's going to have to deal with those who have done super horrible crimes, but he will judge and condemn and cast out those who didn't love the brethren. They didn't do something. It's the sins of omission that are highlighted in the condemnation and those whom Jesus left. Their failure to love the believers shows up that they did not love him. Let the words of Jesus when he speaks about these things be a challenge to you. The way we know that you or anyone else loves the Lord Jesus, what's the measure of it? Do they love the brethren? And we could think of the brethren far off overseas in Myanmar or Ukraine or in England or or in Africa. But what about the brethren under your nose? What about the brethren that you mix with? It matters not that you might find them uncomfortable to be around. It matters not that they might not share your opinions about secondary matters like baptism or vaccine mandates or eschatology. This is the bottom line that separates the shepherd, the sheep from the goats. Love for the brethren. And because love is not a feeling but a verb... Because God so loved the world didn't mean that he had a nice feeling about us. Rather, he sent his son for us. This means that love will be revealed in works, in actions. And to have no action or inaction in this context context is to be in a desperately dangerous position. Let's bring it to a close. Let's note here again to be absolutely clear that the passage does not teach that by caring for the poor we earn salvation. I'm certainly sure that you might look at it that way as some have done. You could read it that way. You could come to that conclusion that if you care for the poor you'll be saved. Let's not misunderstand what Jesus says here. As we noted last week in relation to the parable of the talents, so we could also note this morning that salvation by self-effort in good works is not in the picture, but it's evidence of good works as a result of salvation is in the picture. Don Carson says, The sheep's good works and the goat's lack of good works 
clearly relate to the ultimate destiny of each group, but they are not the cause of each destiny. But rather those good works are the evidence of who these people really are. Make sure you've got that point. Yes, we are judged by works, but they are not the cause of our destiny. These sheep that the Lord Jesus speaks about in this story are not those people who are doing good work, hoping that God will accept them because of what they do. They are are those who, having believed on Jesus and are responding to his love, and in them this fruit of love is found because of the gospel and nothing else. And this is where our reading from 1 John 4 comes across and strikes us. What does it say? We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Now I want to ask you to ask yourself, if this is the great dividing line between the sheep and the goats, do you love your brothers and sisters? And do you have works of love that will show that you love them? That need may not just be financial, it may be emotional, it could be physical, it could be social, it could be spiritual, it could be emotional. Those needs might not be simple, they could be complex. They may make you feel uncomfortable, they may make you feel awkward, they may make you out of pocket, out of favour with others. Do you embrace them? And you embrace them, not just because you're connected with them socially or through shared family or shared geography or a shared history. Do you embrace them for gospel reasons? So you love them because Christ loves them. They are precious to you because they are precious to him. And though you have very few things in common with them, you will love them and you will bind yourself to them because they are his and not for any other superficial reason. Is that the kind of love you have for the brothers? And are you ready and willing and prepared to extend that love beyond the circle of God's family? Here at the end of this discourse, when we're thinking about end times, thinking about the end of the world, it all comes down to love, doesn't it? Augustine said this 1,600 years ago, the one who is ready for the coming of the Lord is not the one who says it's far away. The one who is ready for the coming of the Lord is not the one who says it is near. The one who is ready for the coming of the Lord is the one who lives his life with sincere faith and steadfast hope and fervent love for his brother. That's 
how you are ready for the coming of the Lord. And it's on that point that you'll be examined. It's on that point that you'll face the searching gaze of the judge of all mankind who has told us now that he is coming and the signs of his coming and prepare for my coming and what he expects expects in the meantime before he comes with power to reign and to judge. The bridesmaids urging us to be prepared and awake the talents urging us to use what you've been given. And now this, the sheep and the goats, urging you to love his people, for love will identify you as his own. And a sheep, and not a goat. And as always, that should drive us to pray. Let's pray. Lord God, we come with grateful thanks to you for giving us your word. We don't want to close this now and say, well, that was that. We need to do business with you. We need you to examine our hearts, to see what really lies within, whether the faith we say we have is real, has fruit, and especially has the fruit of love. Thank you that you loved us when we were enemies. You call us to love others. They're not our enemies. But you do actually teach us to love our enemies. And so by this we plead, cry out to you that you would be the fount of love in our lives that we would not leave here unless we are certain that we love you most of all, that we know of and have tasted your love. You gave yourself for us on the cross so freely, so willingly that we might be yours forever. So help us to respond if we are in the kingdom already. Help us to pray for more fruit of love. If we're not in the kingdom, help us to come to Christ now, to put our hope and trust in him, to believe in him before he becomes that judge. Because to have him as saviour will mean facing him as judge will be of no concern. Grant this, we pray, and teach us. Open our ears and hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.